Today on Security Science, is GitHub the new source for exploits? Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Dan Mellinger and today we're looking at the phenomena of GitHub becoming a de facto database for exploit code. Or is it? Um, with me, I have our Director of Security Research at Kenna Security, the exploit coding, Jerry Gamblin. How's it going, Jerry? Good, good. How are you guys today? Doing good. Um, and some would say our special guest is the de facto database for cybersecurity research. He's the partner and co-founder at Scientia Institute, Jay Jacobs. Welcome back, Jay. How's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, just real quick, I'll start off as this topic is based off of a blog that Jay recently published on the Scientia website. And so we'll link to that on the episode page on podcast.kennerresearch.com, just so you guys can all check it out, follow along. There's some pretty cool charts. Um, and I know that our friend Famita wrote an article on this as well on duo.com slash decipher. So you can go check that out if uh, you're listening this week, which is what, Thursday, January 14th. So this will probably be up a week later. Should still be on the front page, I would assume. Um, but ultimately, we're looking at this phenomenon that Jay's been tracking on exploits and weaponization of exploits being published to GitHub, which we'll explain, but typically isn't the use case for it. So anyway, uh, I figured we'd start off real quick with a primer from Jay. Jay, what got you looking into this? Well, so there's a couple of things. So uh, one thing is that um, we've been trying to find more and more sources for anything about vulnerabilities and um, looking at essentially like the, the MITRE publishes their CV list, NVD will pick that up and add a lot more stuff to it. But looking at the references for each CVE, we saw that GitHub was climbing. Uh, year over year, the past three, four years, the number of references to GitHub was going way up. Uh, and so that made us wonder, you know, is this, uh, you know, are people just linking to vulnerable projects or are they actually linking to exploits? What, why are we seeing GitHub go up, grow in popularity and references for vulnerabilities? And so that made us look into it. And of course, we found, uh, of course, anybody who's been around know that there are exploits published to GitHub. Um, but there's a huge challenge then of discovering, classifying, labeling these as exploits versus, you know, you get scanners, you get discussions of the vulnerabilities that have no exploits whatsoever. Trying to separate those out is, a, is an interesting challenge. Huh. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And uh, before we get too deep into it, and a nice segue here, but Jerry, do you mind just giving us an overview on like what's a vulnerability versus an exploit versus uh, weaponization of that exploit? So yeah, we'll start at the the first. A vulnerability is is a known flaw in software. Um, it could have, it, it could just be a logic flaw. It could be code flaw. It could be anything. It's just something wrong with a piece of software. And so those are eligible for CVEs. An exploit is code that actually exploits that. Uh, Jay's the master at that chart that shows, you know, the difference between a vulnerability and a vulnerability with exploit. And I haven't seen that chart in the last three months, but it always is in the low single digits. Um, so the, the truth is finding a vulnerability is easy. Uh, finding an exploit is, is super difficult. Yeah, and uh, I'll just list off some of the stats that are in the blog and, you know, I've actually been shared through some of the prioritization or prediction reports and our um, exploit prediction scoring system work. But vulns that have a published exploit um, or code that's uh, 
exploit code that's published online are seven times as likely to be exploited. Um, kind of makes sense, right? Because the hard part is actually writing the exploit, like Jerry said. And then um, weaponized exploits. So I, I don't know if I've seen this stat before, Jay, but you wrote in the blog that the odds of exploitation in the wild jump from 3.7 to 37.1% if a vuln has an exploit and um, it's weaponized. So could you go over that a little bit? Yeah, I think that was I think that was specifically Metasploit when we talk about a weaponized exploit. And that is essentially something that is incredibly easy to run, right? It's anybody can grab it, run it, it's weaponized, it's ready to go. As opposed to something that, you know, like some source code on GitHub or Pastebin or something you have to grab, compile, configure, you know, it's not it's not ready to go, but it's there. The exploit is there. So that weaponized, when we looked at essentially Metasploit, we find that the odds of exploitation on the wild essentially um, at a base rate is like 3.7%. And then when we look at the number of um, CVEs, vulnerabilities, and Metasploit that we see exported in the wild, it's like 37% of those. It jumps way up. So those that are in Metasploit, if we know that it's in Metasploit, published in Metasploit, we're way more likely, 10 times more likely to see it exploited in the wild. And that Again, that's a correlation. We don't know if that's causation just based on the data alone. It's not, we can't say that because it's in there, it's in there. But what we know is that when we see it in there, we are also likely to see it exploited in the wild. That makes sense. And that's actually a really good segue as well to explain, um, you know, the traditional ways that we typically have exploit code published is uh, things like exploit DB. You talked about Metasploit. Um, could you guys just provide a little background on what's exploit DB? Why does it exist? What's it used for? Um, it might help color the conversation on why people are moving towards GitHub. Yeah, exploit DB is is just a website. Uh, I don't know exactly when it was founded, but it was just the start of mapping CVEs to, to exploit code, uh, you know, you could add the, add the exploit code and then somebody, you could search for it, right? It was the first real way to, to match up a CVE to something that, that could be exploited, exactly as the name says. Yeah, it was, uh, who cre- I think Offensive Security is the company who... They bought it, I think it was like 2010 that they acquired that. Um, but I think before that it was one person or a small group of people. And I think it's still a small group of people, don't get me wrong. So I think what's interesting is a lot of the data that we see around vulnerabilities, a lot of it is being driven by one person or two or three people sort of driving a large portion of this. Um, You know, like if you look at the history of just MITRE and CVEs in general, just seeing how many people were involved in 99 when the first one was published through you know, 2003 to 2005, and then, you know, what happens in 2017, we get the CNA process. I mean, it's just really interesting. So a lot of this stuff, when it starts out as like one person, and then usually you get some sponsorship and some corporate involvement and uh, it gets a little bit more mature. I mean, and I think it's a good point to, to talk about here that GitHub isn't replacing VulnDB. Right. VulnDB has exploit just become, ha, yeah, exploit DB, sorry, had just become uh, less of a place for people to, to put the data, right? Like the data is getting stale because it's going to Twitter. Um, it's, it's going to other places. And I think we have a question later in the, in the question list about how, how are these exploits shared? Because they weren't publishing the exploit to exploit DB. 
it was just getting linked there in some way, right? Like that was hardly ever the first place that it would it would end up. It would end up on a mailing on a mailing list that somebody was on or or something like that. ExploitDB was just the the central hub for that data. And I think that's moved somewhere else. And I'm not exactly sure where outside of the 40 Slack channels I'm in and, and the Twitter <laughs> sh- that, that never stops, right? Yep. I, I did want to note as well, which I just thought was kind of funny because the topic, but uh, ExploitDB also has a um, Git repository for it as well. Yeah. So I just, just kind of funny that it's tied off that way. And then um, uh, Metasploit, can you go into that? So that essentially is a weaponized exploit. It makes it a lot easier to use or? Yeah, when... When I was coming up in the industry, we called those script kitties. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's if that's still the term, but what it is is it's 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 basically a CLI list of I want to attack this system with this exploit. I don't need to know what it does. I don't you know most of the time I don't care what it does, and and then give me the data. It's it's Leak the easy hacksers. Yeah, it's the leap button. It's the easy button for hacking, right? Like it's the uh, the video game kids screaming at you i'm gonna hack you because you beat me yeah method got it <laughs> well and i think uh now that we're getting into the meat of things a little bit i mean github let's just do a little background what's it intended to be used for and um, that might influence why it's become what it has github is a code sharing site right it runs git i have added my normal xkcd thing in there nobody knows what git is but GitHub was a code sharing site that's become the number one code sharing site. There's GitLab out there and there are a few others. I'm not sure if uh, Jay looked at any of those, but but GitHub is by and far the world's most popular code sharing website. Yep, definitely. And I mean, like there's no, it, it's free for most users. Um, I mean, you, there are, of course, commercial options and things that you can su- subscribe to. But to just create a public repository of code, you can just go sign up and do it. So the, the barrier to entry is much smaller compared to something like ExploitDB, where you actually have to grab an exploit, create a submission, submit it to uh, I can't remember the company's name, Offensive Security. Uh, they will review it and then possibly post it and you know validate it and stuff like that for GitHub. It's just, I'm going to create an account, I'm going to go dump it, and then I'm done. You know, I mean, there's no review, there's no gate to get through. It's just, it's out there. That might make sense why people might use it more. Because I know ExploitDB, they do try to validate some of these vulnerabilities where they can by testing it and being like, okay, yeah, this works and we'll put a green check mark next to it, right? No such thing on GitHub. So Jay, let's get into this, the numbers. We have a really cool chart. I encourage anyone who's listening to go uh, check out the blog on the Science Institute website and or uh, linked on the podcast page, but let's go over the numbers. So essentially I looked at um, the number of new exploits being published to ExploitDB, GitHub, and Metasploit. And, and Metasploit, not too much of a story. It's pretty flat. Um, and it's, you know, I would guess probably on average, what, about 10 a month, uh, 10, 10 to 20 on average a month. And then, and this is over the last four years. Uh, and when we look at ExploitDB, it sort of peaks in 2018 and it's been dropping pretty steady ever since. Looks like there might be a little uptick at the end of 2020. But generally, it went from probably, I don't know, 80 to 100 a month at the beginning of 2018. And now it's at 
20 to, to 30, maybe in 2020, um, as opposed to GitHub that started out at 10 to 20 in 2017. And now on average, it's probably 60 a month. Um, so essentially what we see is ExploitDB sort of peaks in 2018. It's been declining ever since. GitHub has been increasing since 2017. Uh, and it looks like it's outpaced ExploitDB at this point for the number of exploits on there. And then Metasploit is just sort of steady. Yeah, it's interesting. These two charts, um, they're plotted, um, you know, it looks like by month, by year. So over time and number of uh, uh, published. And they look like mirrors of each other almost, which is interesting. Yeah, sort of flipped right? around. So, yeah, yeah. Exploit is going down. GitHub is going up. Um, and Metasploit is roughly about the same yeah. <laughs> throughout the years. Jerry, you found this super interesting. What are your initial thoughts? It's interesting, but it also uh, it also talks to a wider audience, right? Um, we have a problem with CVEs, quote unquote, problem with the amount of CVEs that are being um, introduced. Uh, last year was ridiculous. This year uh, we've had it's what is it the fourteenth? And I just ran the thing. We've had eighty three CVEs so far. Um, 15 of them were in one product that's not supported that were all cross-site scripting. So we're we're just filling up the the CVE list of stuff like this and all of those could could easily go into GitHub, the cross-site scripting ones as, you know, there's a CVE for it. Here's how I do it, you know, and and that'll make the numbers go up. Um I, I love this data, and I do see GitHub becoming more and more the place for this. But I really think that that it gets interesting when we break it down. And I know Jay's working on this, or, or we're talking about this. Like, what does the CVE actually attack? Right? Like, is it a cross-site scripting CV? Uh, a cross-site scripting POC? Because I expect to see one of those. Right? Like, if you get a if you get a CVE for a cross-site scripting attack. You you better have a POC that you can that you can post with it, right? So some of those AppSec CVEs should automatically have POC data. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that's a good point because the number of CVEs is only increasing year over year, and we've seen that. And there's a ton of them. And Jerry, you were early on. I think you wrote a blog about CVE stuffing, right? Um, yeah. For things like these cross-site scripting, which you could just essentially run on. <laughs> Uh, ad infinitum for you know check software here website here right um yeah i mean but then we have the other issue too where where poc is a poc but it doesn't mean that it's ever going to get weaponized um growing up i had a i had a friend who did karate and you know he was always like let me hold your arm like this and show you what i can do right like yeah of course if you get somebody with their arm behind their back you can do a cool karate move and some of these pocs are kind of like that right it's like Hey, if you have a box and you can run this script as root, you can you can make this work. It's like, oh, nice, yeah, I I, I see where that is. I mean, if I have root, I'm doing something completely yeah, I mean, different. It, <laughs> it's a valid POC because it exploits the CVE, but the chance of it getting weaponized is there's still a lot of a lot of steps to take between some POCs that that'll run on a machine as root or you know with the software. To, to get to something that's actually weaponized. And, you know, it's great to have this POC, these POCs and this data to see how it does. But but as Jay was talking about, getting to a weaponized state is still 
is still a bridge too far for some of these. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And that also, the karate piece reminds me of an office Dwight and Jim segment. So I'll see if I can link that because that would be hilarious. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, that being said, so Jay, I'm sure this is the fun part for you, right? Um, GitHub was not designed, it's not an exploit database, right? It wasn't designed to host exploits and be searchable for them, all that, you know, fun stuff. So how did you determine if a GitHub repo has an exploit? So first, um, GitHub has a set of tags that people can tag a repository with, and there are tags for exploits, POC, you know, I mean, like people, you can grab these tags and search for them, but the problem is that's up to the creator of the repository to make sure those tags are there, and that is completely, un, you can't depend on it at all. Um, and so the there are two huge problems in here. One is discovery, like how do you look at the the fire hose that is GitHub because it is extremely popular and um, keeping up on what's being published there is extremely difficult. And one of the cool things, GitHub offers um, a streaming API where you can essentially, when you refresh, you see, you know, you get a list of all the new repos and changes in the last X period. But the problem is you can't refresh that fast enough to watch the fire hose. Like you go and you get this thing. It's like, hey, there's 30 pages here. And by the time you go to the second page, it's already looped through 30 pages of content. Like it's insane, especially during busy peak times, you know, in general evenings in the U.S. and things like that. So you can't watch that fire hose that way. So essentially going through their API, looking for searches, all these things, trying to find good keywords, trying to whittle that down to some sort of seed data set. And then, of course, the challenge is, how do you look at this discovered repositories and say, which one of these contain exploits and which don't? <laughs> and this is where the next challenge comes in that essentially what we decided to do is to manually hit the list. So we started going through, I think we got several hundred, I think six, 700 repositories manually inspected. Um, and what was interesting, I mean, like we would look at some of these repositories and have absolutely no idea if this was an exploit or not. And just some of the complete vagueness, you know, you get things where it's like the only thing in there is something called exploit.py. And so you actually have to go look at the exploit, look at the code, and it might say like, you know, um, this will find all exploits for the CVE. And so you look at it and it's basically it grabs a header and looks at the version, you know, as opposed to actually exploiting it, because if it just finds a version, that's not going to help anybody attack or, you know, test it, you know, anything other than just say it's there. So you have to sort of whittle through and go through these very carefully. And then you get, there's so many gray areas to say, is this an exploit or not? You know, for cross-site scripting, if it, um, it just has alert, you know, this is XSS, like, is it actually an exploit? Because it does theoretically do cross-site scripting, but popping up an alert is not essentially a huge payload. But I mean, anybody who knows some basic JavaScript can replace that with what they want, but is that truly an exploit? You know, um, so it's tough, but essentially what we did is we got that list of labeled data saying these repositories are, these repositories are not. And then there are other challenges, like you get a repository that has a hundred CVEs and exploits in there, and some of them are exploits and some of them aren't. Huge mess. Anyway, once you get that list of those, then you can look at attributes. So, you know, we're looking at file names, the contents, the dates, the lifetimes, the 
how many commits, what is a commit range? You know, we're looking at as many possible attributes of these repositories and the code that we can get our hands on from GitHub. And we use that to essentially create a classifier. And then once you've got that classifier, you can see how it performs. You know, you train it on some amount of this labeled data and hold out some of it. And you say, all right, now I'm going to run this classifier and what I held out, how did it perform? How did it go? And then in the blog post, I think I threw a rock curve, what is called the receiver operator characteristic, um, which doesn't mean anything to anybody pretty much, but essentially it's a curve that says, what is the false positive rate versus the true positive rate? Um, and because the, the classifier outputs something between zero and one, it doesn't say this is or this isn't. It says this is a 0.9, this is a 0.2, this is a 0.7. Uh, and so it, you want to take that output and say, I'm going to make a cutoff at 0.9 or 0.6 or 0.5, whatever it is. And when I make that cutoff, what is the true positive rate versus the false positive rate? And so like, you know, for, for a company like Kenna, for instance, if you wanted to be super confident that what you're saying is, is an exploit uh, and, and you want to be sure that you're confident that you're going to want to set that threshold pretty high, like a 0 0.9, 0 0.95. That way, anything above that, you can be really sure that is an exploit. Um, and conversely, if you want to be sure you don't miss something, you might want to lower that down significantly. Interesting. Well, let's move on to what I think Jerry thinks is the fun part of now that you've uh, determined if something has an exploit, what's kind of the, the breakdown? So, Jerry, you were asking questions on the breakdown of the languages used, um, you know, some of the vendors listed. Jerry, uh, Jay popped in some nice data that isn't in the blog, and we might be um, trying to work on another blog to publish after this podcast that'll talk about this stuff. But, um, Jerry, did you want to lead any interesting uh takeaways from the language breakdown or any some of the uh yep. um, we'll probably try to uh, add that to the blog or to, or to this notes right but yeah it's mostly python was the the number one language and that's probably most people's go-to quick and dirty kind of language uh it's it's what i always go to especially if if it's a web-based because the request library is so great you can just say oh i'm looking for this header from this VPN project, right? So like, it's it's simple to work with. I wasn't surprised there. I was mostly asking for the data to just kind of, you know, validate what I was thinking. But yeah, and then you get to C, which is interesting. Um, I don't know a lot of people who write exploits in C. Um, I wonder how many of those. Those would be an interesting set to look through because my best guess are those are Windows vulnerabilities that are probably really legitimate, that, that somebody has written this code in C, and, and, and in there there's a compiler that turns it into an EXE that lets you exploit that on there. So, like, just kind of in what's interesting on those lists, like, like I, I just did C in school, so I'm not great with it, but I would really be interested in looking through that list of CVEs that are written in C. If I had to guess, um, there's a couple of thoughts here. One is that um, as we're going through these repositories, there are quite a few um, student projects. You know, teachers will actually assign, go find a vulnerability, write an exploit and submit it as your final project or something. And so you'll see, you know, and, and by the way, do it and see, you know, you might see some things like that. Um, another thing might be some of the um, memory related vulnerabilities, I think might be easier to exploit and see than Python or something else. So that might be, you know, specific to the type of vulnerability. I, I haven't looked at that, but that would just be my hunch. 
yeah, much more low level of a of a piece yeah. of software. Yeah. Um, so outside of that, uh, what do you think that this means for security practitioners, researchers, and IT admin? Do you think that this is kind of a a big shift in the way that? Yeah, I don't think it's a shift. Um, I mean, it's it's a shift because you know constantly things are changing, and you have to sort of keep your finger on the pulse as best you can to try and figure out what what we see from a threat perspective. And as we talked about early on, one of the biggest indicators of threat is when these exploits are discussed and have exploits published for them. And so the the more broad broadly these things are discussed, the more likely we are to see them exploited in the wild. And so just being aware, you know, if you are working in vulnerability management, if you're a security practitioner, researcher, whatever, you want to be aware of first the vulnerabilities in your systems, but then also how to prioritize. And one of the probably easiest indicators is if you see some type of exploit published out there. And so keeping an eye on GitHub, keeping an eye on ExploitDB, Metasploit, all the other sources out there for when these things get published, I think it's a, a really good indicator that these should probably be prioritized over those without an exploit. Did your model look at if these links on these GitHub repos get added back to the CVE details page? I ended up um, completely ignoring that. Okay. Completely ignoring <laughs> the CVE details, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's actually interesting because we just did, uh, what, volume six of the report, right? Where we were looking at, you know, basically momentum of attackers versus defenders and um, based off of timelines, right? Um, what happened first, order of operations, what happened second. Um, and throughout the P2P series, the existence of an exploit has always been kind of the the go moment, right? When that characteristic happens, you you should go take care of this. So what are some of the drawbacks of, you know, them existing on a GitHub and, you know, all the challenges you had just pulling the data, right? Accurate data and the trade-offs with that and them being published to ExploitDB or a Metasploit or somewhere else that is designed to do this and people can, you know, keep track of that flood a little bit easier, right? Uh, after Jay, I'd like to hop in here because I, I, I have probably an interesting take outside of the data part on this. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, like you mentioned uh, volume six of the P2P series, and in there we looked at, um, we had a question about if uh, exploit code is published, I think we had a cutoff of when the patch was released. So if an exploit code was published before the patch was released, what is the effect on exploitation in the wild? And we saw a huge shift. And so, and of course, like, when I first saw that, my brain was like, oh, this looks terrible. Like exploit code appears to cause more exploitation in the wild. But that that cause versus correlation is something people always trip up on. And I'm no exception. So essentially, I mean, like when we looked at it deeper, in order to detect something as exploit in the wild, you need to have a signature to detect it. And to write that signature, it's a lot easier to write if you have some sort of proof of concept that you can make sure that signature is going to trigger at the right time. So... If you think about it, in order to detect it in the wild, it's helpful to have a proof of concept. So when we see a proof of concept out there and we see it exploited in the wild faster, does that mean that it's actually been exploited faster or that we're just detecting it faster? You know, was it always exploited out there or is the fact that we're seeing that exploit giving us a, an advantage? It's an advantage to see these things exploited sooner. You know, so it's it's a difficult thing. And so the the drawback, I think, of seeing these things on GitHub, obviously, they can be used by attackers. Um, 
And they're going to highlight this vulnerability more, put it more on people's radar. But I think there's benefits too, you know? So like once you have that exploit, you can create a signature. You can know how to reconfigure a firewall or your, you know, your WAF or whatever. Just how to deal with that exploit if you can actually get it and run it and put it through your security tools. Yeah, I I really think this is a signal intelligence question, right? Like you want to be as close to the to the information as, as your adversary is. And by the time you walk all the way back to an exploit DB, that's had to gone through a process that, you know, either involves somebody running some kind of script or a person looking at it. So you're 24, 48 hours kind of removed. And I'm guessing that Metasploit, which is kind of like the gold standard is probably way more than that, right? Like what he was talking about that streaming API you want to be as close to that as you can. I want the data in real time. I don't want to give, like we talked about in, in PDP volume six, that head start. If I can see a POC, you know, at the same time that my attacker is seeing the POC, we can start our remediation flow at exactly that point. But waiting on someone to to update another set, uh, an exploit DB or you know, whatever adds latency to to kicking off that remediation process. So the closer and faster we can get to, to real-time data gets us closer to how our attackers are working. Interesting. So you think this is ultimately a net benefit? We just need to figure out how to do this faster? Yeah, because this is where the uh, where the attackers are getting it. And, and Sites that that you know pull this together and kind of you know make it a service or whatever and exploit DB like they have to get much faster because you know forty eight hour turnaround time from it being published on on GitHub to being in my you know my threat intelligence data isn't acceptable in twenty twenty right like you want to see it as quickly as your attackers are seeing it. Hmm. That's really interesting. Is there, yeah, I'm sure we probably don't have this level of data yet, but it'd be interesting. So are the exploits against existing CVEs primarily? I'm going to say yes. There's a really interesting, there's a really, really interesting uh, article that just came out that says the NSA hasn't dealt with a zero day in over three years, right? Like they said, they said that (laughs) all of the all of the stuff that they've worked on publicly have been of known CVEs. It, I just tweeted it this morning. Oh, like from a response perspective or what? Yeah, from, from other countries, from from off from their defensive side, right? Like they're not seeing yeah. bad country X using zero days. They're seeing them use known CVEs with known exploits, Blue Keep right? and, yeah, the yeah. Microsoft. And, I mean, that's uh, something we saw in our data in V6 that essentially the, you know, the remediation gets to a point and plateaus. It doesn't, you don't get a hundred percent remediation on these vulnerabilities that people are finding in their phone scanners. You get 80, 90% coverage. And there's always these corners that the, the phone scanners see, but the, you can't remediate. They're just, they're either not part of the remediation platform. They're, you know, you can't find the owner of that system. They're in a corner They're whatever it is, there's just some amount of systems that just seem to fall off. And so what we see then in the attacker perspective, when we see the exploits in the wild, it's a much slower growth to it, right? And so you sort of see the attackers just 
sort of marching along and um, they don't appear to be in a rush. We don't see this mad scramble right when something is published or, you know, the patch is released. We don't see that. We see this sort of, we do see a, you know, slight increase, but it's not like 80% is in the first week. It's like 10% in the first week or something. And it's just sort of spread out over time. And it's a slow march from the attacker perspective. Because I wonder, like, just kind of think about that as somebody who played defense for a long time. I wonder how much of that is an attacker picks a CVE to exploit or if an attacker is just going to look at a at an organization, right? Like, I want to get in this organization. I don't care what CVE it is. Let me see if they've missed patching their firewall or their VPN or their web server or their, you know, exchange server. I don't care what, what it is. I just want in versus here's the CVE I'm going to shop everywhere to, to try to to try to get in. Yeah, so the difference between a target versus targets of opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Do you think uh, security right now as an industry is monitoring GitHub close enough? I'm going to go with no, but... I'm going with, I think it's becoming more and more of a focal point, uh, not outside of this research. This research is unique, and, and I love the stuff that Jay's done here, but kind of as a security industry, especially on the AppSec side, uh, GitHub has decided that they're going to basically become everything. They're offering a SCA now, a, a static code analysis tool. Um, they do alerts inside the thing. They're a CNA. They're issuing CVEs for, for code hosted on GitHub. So GitHub has really, really become the center of at least the application security world's focus on vulnerabilities recently. Uh, if you go and look in their actions in their marketplace, almost all the major security tools have plugins that allow you to run the, the code, run their tool right from GitHub. Yeah. Jay, do you think uh, there's any gaps in data? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's always this discussion about, um, you know, vulnerabilities that have a CVE versus not. Um, and so part of the challenge is that when people post a vulnerability and I mean, this applies not just to GitHub, but to everything with a vulnerability. So like if you look at exploit DB, then there are probably my guess is there's some proportion and I have no idea what that is because I have no idea how many, but um, there's some proportion that are exploiting a CVE that nobody took the time to say this is mapped to the CVE. Um, and so like for GitHub, for example, one of the key fields that we're trying to search on is CVE. And so um, when we find CVEs mentioned, and of course it's super easy to tie to a CVE, when we see something uh, like BlueKeep is a great example, when you have a vulnerability that's very popular that has a name, uh, people will create repos with BlueKeep and not even bother discussing a CVE or linking a CVE somehow. And so those become a little bit more of a challenge to discover and associate. Uh, and this is globally, this is not just GitHub, um, but it's something that we're seeing. And so that's part of the challenge with this is that it is so ad hoc. So the, the whoever creates a repo can decide every aspect of what goes into that, how it's tagged, how it looks, how it appears, the information in there. And so the challenge is to go through and figure out the commonalities and how to how to mine this in an automated fashion. Well, and, and did you even look at GIST or no? I didn't. We we skipped the the individual code things. Um, that yeah, that would be fun because I mean, there's again like that's probably even more scattered. Yeah, and that's where I dump kind of POC kind of stuff working stuff is 
is just in a in a guest because a repo is forever. And like I want the code to be to meet like a certain level of like cleanliness and like I'm going to update it and like I want people to do pull requests on it or whatever. But 90 percent of the time, if I'm working on something that's just kind of a one off, I just uh, use GitHub's codelet service is called gist gist so like if you go look at what's in my gist list it's a bunch of shell scripts and python scripts that 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 work that i want to share but i don't want to support interesting it's like a scratch pad type thing or you just yeah public a public scratch pad public bulletin board yeah and you don't have to have the whole repository built around it you can just put a code block out there gotcha interesting well i mean this is all very cool. I think you know the industry, especially from a cybersecurity standpoint, is paying increasing attention to GitHub, um, even outside of the pure application security side. But overall, any final takeaways you guys have? I know we want to dig further into this, um, and it seems like it's going to align with some of our you know future reports um, <laughs> for sure. So, uh, Jerry, what's yeah. your any final takeaways for you? I'm, I'm waiting to see how GitHub reacts to becoming this repository right um you know it, they they will become a big target if code is hosted here that then goes on to to be used to exploit massive amounts of people i know i've seen poc kind of versions of like uh, c2c bots that are run through github but none of them have really been been big or you know noteworthy even but i'm just waiting for the first time that someone drops a poc on github that becomes the base for a major breach and to see see how they respond to that. Yeah, that'd be hard to link back though, wouldn't it? I mean, like, yeah, um, knowing where they picked up an exploit that was used in a large attack is going to be a tricky attribution to make. We're probably more likely for an attacker to post his code on GitHub and then use that code to exploit a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to watch. Um, I mean, it's sort of exciting to see. It's always tough working on data, and you see that data source t- start to dwindle, as we've seen with ExploitDB, and then to find that you know some of this is shifting over to GitHub is is very. It's a relief to me to find that something that's increasing lately uh, around this. So I'm pretty excited about that. Never enough data, right? <laughs> Never enough. Yeah. Awesome. Well, appreciate both you gentlemen for hopping on today. And like I said, we'll have all these resources. So I'll link to, well, Jerry's uh, XKCD post because we have to have one of those in the podcast with him. Um, and then also the links to the Scientia blog and also the Decipher article. And then we may go back and update this if we write a secondary blog. But Jay, Jerry, thanks for hopping on and we'll keep tracking this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jay. This has been really fun. Yep, thanks.